Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Madeline Parkinson, a DPhil candidate at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking about how Madeline grew up in a philosophy household, her research on erotic love and beauty, and her insights on the admissions process and the difference between applying to American and British universities. Madeline Parkinson, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Hi, thank you for having me. Did you always see yourself studying philosophy? No, absolutely not. My mom did philosophy and my dad did philosophy and my stepdad did philosophy. So I think I saw myself as doing anything but philosophy for a (laughs) while. I started in physics abandoned that quickly and I thought literature would be the place for me, but philosophy just had this draw. I couldn't really escape it. We've had a few guests that talk about going from literature to philosophy, which I think maybe seems, actually, I don't know if that's more straightforward than going from physics to philosophy, but we had a few guests that did that. Was there something that bridged the gap between literature and philosophy for you? The person who really sold me on philosophy was Dostoevsky. When I read Dostoevsky, I just felt so much that he made me believe in God and made me not believe in God, but at the same time and not in a contradictory way, but in a really beautiful and complex way. And I think that started me on kind of thinking about how do you live philosophically and how do you position yourself philosophically? And so he was the kind of great love of my life literature wise and continues to be. I can totally see the inspiration there. I think for me, Dostoevsky came after studying philosophy. So I guess for you, growing up in a philosophy house, you were probably exposed to you know works like Dostoevsky's from quite a young age. Were they uh, part and parcel of dinner conversations <laughs> in the Parkinson household? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, my mom was an avid reader and she used to kind of sit me down and read to me for hours on end. So We started with Anne of Green Gables and Chronicles of Narnia and quickly graduated to the Brothers Karamazov, which went right over my head. Did not understand it as a kid, but those types of things were just so much a part of my life that it seemed like the background noise to what I normally did. Even silly things like going out for sleepovers, my mom would kind of want a proper defense of, and I'd have to talk about the role of friendship and like virtue and those types of things. So it was just constantly the interplay between us. And what you're studying now in the DPhil and previously in your master's as well is ancient philosophy in particular. And for me, while Dostoevsky didn't come in until a bit later, I think a lot of the philosophical reading I'd done before starting a uni was Plato, which, you know, quite accessible, quite a nice way of getting into philosophy. Is that how it worked for you? Yeah, I think I did read Plato early on. I think the Allegory of the Cave was one of the first philosophical readings my mom had me do. And it didn't really strike me right off the bat. I didn't think it was that interesting. I thought it was just a kind of cool story. And I read it multiple times through high school. And I liked Plato, but I guess I wouldn't have said that that's what I would study. I was really interested in theories of emotions and theories of love and things like that. And then I actually started by studying Greek. I thought studying Greek would be cool. And so I did it. And then it kind of got me to really fall in love with the language. It is just such a beautiful and complex language. Having studied Greek for so long eventually led me to apply to the ancient program. And so ancient was just kind of a chance meeting that I fell in love with. It's quite interesting because I mean, I think just like Lewis and I also, the first philosophy book that I read was The Republic. And I remember, as you just mentioned, the allegory of the cave comes up in there. But rather than 
continue to pursue ancient philosophy, I went in a completely different direction and did other kinds of philosophy. But you remained with your interest in ancient philosophy and then took towards studying Greek, as you just said, which is really fascinating. And there's obviously that one word in, in Greek that doesn't translate super well, or at least that word gets translated several different times, which is love, right? There's lots of different ways of rendering that term. And I think the one that you're particularly interested in is the one that derives from the word eros. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to study the idea of erotic love? Absolutely. I just think the Greek for love is so cool because there's agape, which is the kind of godlike love. There's philia, which is the love between family or brothers. And there's eros, which is this kind of passionate love. And I think we normally associate it with sexual love, which it has that connotation. But it's really about just this kind of overwhelming, almost madness style love. And so I became interested in it Honestly, through reading the Phaedrus and the Symposium, these two dialogues that are centered on love, and they just seemed like works of art to me first and foremost. And so kind of my love for literature came in with that. And unlike some of the other dialogues, which can be kind of brutal philosophy that you kind of have to trudge through, this was just gorgeous. It was poetry. And I was very interested in the idea that this philosopher who is hyper-rational, famous for never getting drunk, for always being well-behaved, just totally extols the virtue of losing your mind while in love. And I was so fascinated by that idea that we would want something that is maddening, that is utterly unreasonable, and we would still desire this. And I was interested in what could lead a philosopher essentially to think something this maddening could be desirable. And that's really where I kind of got into erotic love. I'm interested in that exact question you pose. Why would this be something that philosophers would find attractive? And thinking about this from, I guess, a rudimentary Platonic framework, right? So Plato made this distinction between the appetitive and rational parts of the soul. And at a surface level, you might think that erotic love is more appetitive in nature, in which case perhaps its value is lesser. Is this a fair way of looking at it? You've touched on a really interesting point. So in the Phaedrus, he uses the metaphor of three horses pulling a chariot. Well, two horses pulling a chariot. So there's the appetitive, the honor-loving, and then the charioteer, which is the rationality. And the soul is this full chariot apparatus. When he talks about erotic love, he doesn't say that it's just the kind of sexual pleasure-seeking horse that goes after it. In fact, it's the whole soul. And the whole soul fills this love and feels this madness, but they feel it each part of the soul in different ways. Obviously, the appetitive part is what we think of as the sexual drive, but the honor loving and the rational part have their own roles to play. And so I think for Plato, the reason he can accept this kind of propulsive force in a life that is so unreasonable is because this propulsive force is always directed at kalos, the beautiful. That's a very difficult Greek term to translate, but I'll say it's the beautiful with a few caveats. But the whole soul is always drawn to the beautiful. And because the beautiful forms this kind of tripartite good with the good, the true, and the beautiful, it's a worthy end for a life. But unlike the good and the true, which require 20 years worth of study to kind of apprehend, the beautiful we love from birth. So it's this kind of unique ones of the tripartite in that the whole soul loves it. And it loves it automatically, untrained, with no philosophic education. And that's why I think he's able to kind of accept the madness of love, because he recognizes 
that it's one of the best ways to get people to philosophy who don't already have training in philosophy. Because unlike truth, where you might need to be educated to even apprehend it, beauty is just there for us to love already. That's really interesting that part of your description of the chariot charioteer example, it seemed like we look at these parts of the soul, I think sometimes, at least when it was presented to us in the Republic, as like quite distinct one is controlling the other two. And like, there's like a kind of balance between the appetitive and was it the desiring or honoring part? Honor, you, loving, you yes. You could describe what all three parts of the soul are doing as kind of like each of them valuing something, the object of it being distinct. So like the rational maybe aiming for like, or valuing truth, the honor alone, like sort of valuing esteem and the other kinds of emotions others can use to think of us. And then the appetitive is like valuing certain kinds of pleasures, perhaps. I think it's quite interesting that the way you described it seems like how sharply distinguished they are isn't as clear anymore, which is really interesting. In your answer, you mentioned the idea of kalos, which you said is tough to translate, tough to render, but it represents something like beauty. How does the concept of like kalos and beauty fit into what we've just spoken about? I guess sometimes the way that I describe it, and this is a bit of a summary and it doesn't capture some of the nuances of it, but you might say something that If you were directed or aimed at truth, what you would seek is knowledge. And if you were directed towards goodness, what you would seek is virtue, because virtue is the goodness of an individual. If you're directed towards beauty, what you seek is to be a lover. So all love is always directed at beauty. That's a claim Plato makes, and we might find it kind of shocking, but he would say something like, when you fall in love with a person, you fall in love with the beauty of the person. Now, what's interesting about the term kalos that makes it so difficult to translate is it has multiple senses. So it can mean the useful, it can mean the noble or the praiseworthy, it can mean the good or the godlike, and it can mean the harmonious. And so often the cosmos is called kalos, beautiful. And the term actually cosmos means to adorn. And so the stars are all beautiful in their kind of harmony. And so what's interesting, the reason he can say that what you love is always beautiful is because he recognizes that you can love maybe things we wouldn't call beautiful in English. You can love ugly things so long as they're harmonized with the good things. And so when you love a person, you love the wholeness of the person. You love the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. And that's what's beautiful about them. And so when he says that you direct yourself to the beautiful, what he's saying is you fall in love with the harmony of the world, with the usefulness and nobility and godlikeness of the world. And you come likewise to disdain things that are opposite to that, to things that are purposely chaotic or disharmonious or ugly or cruel or foul. And he thinks that this is something unlike knowledge that you have to learn This is something we do kind of automatically. We just sense that this is a good that we want to pursue. And so I'm really interested in how you integrate that into a reasonable life, a life where everything you do should kind of come with good reasons and good thought. And yet somehow there's this other thing that isn't reasonable that just sweeps us off our feet and is just markedly good. I'm interested in the way that you described beauty then is a good that we want to pursue, but not just a good. I mean, you described it in quite a colorful term and how part of what it is to see beauty is to see the harmony in all of the universe, this big grand perception. And I'm wondering what then exactly is this good that we're after? Is this just, it wouldn't seem fair to me to say this is just 
one small component of what it means to live a good life. It seems like you might be gesturing towards something greater, perhaps something relating to the wider search for meaning in lives. Absolutely. I think that it's interesting. Part of my work is relating truth, beauty, and goodness because they have so many interrelated facets that it's really difficult to distinguish them in Plato. And there's a lot of interesting scholarship about the metaphysics of these different terms and how they relate. But when it comes to a life, a beautiful life is one of the highest ends and one of the best meanings you can ascribe to a life because a beautiful life is a life where you love beauty And loving beauty is about loving the beauty in yourself, which means harmonizing yourself. And so that kind of tripartite soul comes back again, where the beautiful life is really about taking each of these aspects of yourself, bringing out the best of those aspects, not getting rid of the pleasure loving part, but leading the pleasure loving part to the highest and best pleasures. And by harmonizing each of these parts, that really is the beautiful life. And so my primary question for my dissertation and my research is really how do we live beautifully? And I'm very interested in this dialogue. It's probably a transitional dialogue between the early and middle period called the Hippias Major. And it's about Hippias, this really handsome, really rich, very capable, very well-paid man arguing with Socrates. And of course, as always, Socrates wins. And Hippias kind of gets angry and storms off and says, who cares about the beautiful? This doesn't matter to me. And Socrates says, well, maybe you can leave and you can forget this and you can live your life. But if I don't know what beauty is and I don't know about beautiful speeches and I don't know about beautiful people and I don't know about beautiful actions because I'm ignorant of beauty itself, then is it really better to live or to die? That kind of saying is crazy because you don't usually get these hyper emotional phrases coming from Socrates. And so you get this beautiful moment where he says, This isn't just a question, what is the beautiful? This is life or death. This is what I live for. And I think when I read that, that kind of fixed me in my topic. And that's what I've been working on. (laughs) That's really interesting. I've never read the Hippias Major, but like one of the features you always get with a platonic dialogue, right, is Socrates going up and bothering people. I mean, maybe there's more in this dialogue than I know of, but I'm sure that in the dialogue, Hippias tries a few sort of accounts for what it is to like live a beautiful life or, you know, suggest what is beauty. And then Socrates, in his typical fashion, will just question and try to destroy them. But are there any kind of suggestions in there that Hippias gives that Socrates sort of is interested in or that we could like extract from for a bit? I guess what I'm trying to say is what kind of views come up in that dialogue that you find useful to consider? That's a great question. It's an interesting dialogue because of the early period dialogues, Socrates only proposes four definitions for the kind of classic what is F, where F is some kind of virtue or good. In the whole of the early corpus, he only proposes four. The Hippias has three of those. So it's actually the early dialogue in which Socrates offers up the most suggestions. But all the definitions fail, all seven of them considered. And they're interesting definitions. They range from very silly. Hippias's first definition is the beautiful is a particularly sexy girl. And that, of course, <laughs> fails to really good ones. The beauty is whatever produces goodness. That one fails as well, but that one is interesting because, yeah, you do think what is beautiful is what kind of arises in some good for people. What I'm interested in is how, even though each of the definitions fail, they show some kind of aspect or shade of beauty that is desirable, but is maybe not the essence of it. So even the sexy girl, it's a funny definition, but it shows that like when we say something like it's desirable to have beauty, 
most people immediately think, oh yeah, a beautiful partner. That's what anybody would want. And it shows that that really isn't the essence of beauty, but we do care about that in a way. We do care about personal beauty. We care about aesthetic beauty. But then it also shows that we care about use beauty. He talks about the beauty of a pot of bean soup. And so we care that the kind of things around us do their function well. And so it shows these kind of shades of beauty that I think is very interesting. Another very interesting aspect, and one I'm particularly keen to work on, is how Hippias himself is this character who really represents the ideal of beauty for most people. He is the best paid sophist in Greek history. And so most people, when they think about a good life, they think, oh my gosh, if I was attractive, if I was well-paid, if I was famous, and on top of that, he makes his own clothes and jewelry. So he's like a (laughs) well-rounded man. And so you are faced with this beautiful man. And then there's Socrates. He's dumpy. His nose is big. He has no (laughs) shoes on ever. He probably doesn't bathe enough. He's just (laughs) ugly. And you're kind of left to wonder, why is Hippias a failed beautiful life? Because he clearly is. By the end of the dialogue, he's a laughingstock. And you kind of wonder, how did he go wrong? This is our ideal of beauty. And where did Socrates go right? And I'm really interested in that because I don't think the dialogue itself answers it, but it kind of shows it. It's a really lovely intuition pump that leads us to think, even if I was rich and beautiful and famous, I don't know that I would be truly happy. There's something lacking there that Socrates has. And maybe what is lacking that Socrates has is just this deep love. He says, if I'm ignorant of this, is it better to live than to die? And that love, that passion for beauty is something that Hippias clearly doesn't have. He could walk away from the conversation. And so maybe all the riches, all the looks, all the fame, it's not enough. What you need is to be a lover. And that's what Socrates is definitely a lover. That's fascinating. And I think something that we can draw so many lessons from practically in today's world as well. I love how that carries over. And where, of course, you're currently housed in your doctoral research is here at the University of Oxford. I'm curious, I mean, given that you had this exposure to philosophy at quite a young age, did you always have your eyes set on exactly where you wanted to be doing your graduate study? Or did you apply a bit more widely than that? I applied very widely from having spoken to people. I think I kind of overdid it. I think I applied to 20 graduate programs and I was accepted to Oxford and Cambridge, and I was thrilled. And so Oxford was a dream school of mine since I was a kid. And so it seemed like it was written in the stars. Do you think that applying widely is something that helped you in your admissions? Is it something that you would recommend to prospective graduate students as well? It really depends on your motives. I think that if you are just really set on getting in somewhere, then I would say, apply to the best, apply to something you're very positive on, but maybe no more than like 10 or 15, I'd say. I think 20 is really pushing it. If you have one in mind and you really only want to go there, then I would say just apply to those programs because otherwise, if you know you'd get in and you wouldn't be that happy, it's a waste of application funds. But it's interesting that you gesture towards Oxford and Cambridge, having been the two offers that you were super excited about of those 20 applications that you had put out there after, of course, having done your undergrad in the US. How did you go about choosing whether or not to pursue graduate study in the UK or the US? I think there could be some quite big structural changes between the two kinds of programs on offer in the two countries. 
Well, to be honest, I wasn't accepted to any U.S. programs. I was waitlisted <laughs> to Stanford, <laughs> but not accepted. I think my research is a little different. And so I think the U.K. holds space for that in a way that I don't think some of the U.S. institutions do. But I was happy to be going here. I really like the structure of it. I like how much freedom you're given and how the research is really your own. And so I really enjoy it. I wouldn't trade it. I think one of the benefits of some of the American PhDs, at least some of the ones in California, right, is that they have these like language requirements. So I was just thinking about when you were saying that you learned Greek, that maybe those places would have been particularly suited to your research as well, just because they would have given you the tools for that, or at least required you to do that, and then gotten you to that goal. But I suppose the freedom that people get at the University of Oxford is maybe still difficult to beat. Is that the idea? Yeah, I definitely think Pros and cons, you know, when you're left to yourself, you really have to make yourself do stuff. So I'm trying to learn French now and it is very slow going. Whereas I think if it was required language, I would pick it up much quicker. But because you have freedom, you really do only things you care about. And so I think I would have to learn French and German. And it's nice that I'm not currently learning German. (laughs) Well, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. 